Welcome to Season 6 of Business Book Talk. Every week, we have a business book author talk about their book and discover why they wrote it. The conversations are casual in tone, but we try and dig a bit deeper into the subject of the book and discover the author's background and their core ideas. I'm sure you'll like this week's book, so let's get started. Hey everybody, it's Bob again. I've got Rethink, 11 surprising things you should do now to win retail customers in the digital age. And I've got Jenny Gilbert, and James Kane was a co-writer in this book, and your siblings. So who, who is the, um, who's the one that gets in most trouble? <laughs> That's a great question. Of course, I'm the angel. Uh-huh. <laughs> and my older brother is the one that always causes the problems. <laughs> okay. Now, how much older is uh, is James? Uh, we're quite close. We're actually just two years apart. Ah, uh, perfect. So you guys definitely bonded when you were younger and, and made your mom and dad's life a little bit easier. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> so let's talk about Rethink. Why the title Rethink, um, with the upside-down dog holding up, looks like a tablet. What are we supposed to be rethinking? Well, here at my job at RWS, I speak with retailers all day long. And they usually come to me with a lot of preconceived notions about how their prospects shop and how their marketing should reach them. And, you know, frankly, we were blown away when we engaged in this research that became the foundation of the book that maybe we weren't so sure about how these prospects really went out and did their shopping. And here we were thinking we were the experts. So this research really became the foundation of a book where we wanted to challenge these retailers to take a step back and to think with a fresh perspective about how their prospects are shopping today. It's not the same as it was 10 years ago or five years ago. Technology has really changed how consumers connect with retailers today. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the rise of uh, Amazon and many, many, many other uh, web-based stores that people do a lot of research in and then make their own decisions or the concept of uh, consumers going to a brick-and-mortar store, trying on the shoes, but not actually buying the shoes there. Um, <clears throat> in fact, Amazon is talking about starting their own brick-and-mortar stores as well. So, you know, it's all happening so rapidly fast, and there are so many options. What do you think is the underlying cause of, of this huge shift in consumerism? Is it that there's just more places that people can shop 24-7, or is it that the consumers are way more educated and really know much more um, about what they want to buy and why they want to buy it than the clerk would ever know? Hmm, that's a great question. It's, I'm going to surprise you a little bit here. <laughs> I, <laughs> I actually think that consumers themselves and their desires haven't changed much. What has changed is the method of how they connect with the retailers they're looking for. So, for example, I see such a powerful movement all over the country where consumers desperately want to connect with local small businesses. They really want to spend their money there. And I think that was true in the past and it's true today. It may not feel that way <laughs> to the small local independent retailer because of all this technology and all these big boxes, they're maybe having trouble connecting even though that impetus is still there. 
So I think the end consumers still want to shop with local businesses that they know and trust. What has changed significantly is how a consumer finds out about and connects with a retailer in their local area. That is what the tremendous shift has happened in with the invention of Google and stores near me and the rise of mobile technology. Underlying behavior, same. But if a store and a retailer cannot embrace that intermediary step, if they can't figure out how to get connected in the first place, then that's when they feel that pain and that frustration. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, it makes total sense. And for sure, for, for store owners and, and um, you know, I live in a relatively small neighborhood. So we have lots and lots of mom and pop shops. And I love going shopping on Saturday. I'll walk up the street and I'll say hi to my friends who actually sell me stuff. And to be able to do that online through Twitter or Facebook or whatever, that's the huge divide right now because you'll have uh, like a mom and pop shop. They've been doing it for 35 years and then suddenly this internet thing comes along and then 15 years later it's reinvented itself 10 times and now it's, I have to learn Twitter now. Uh, it's too much. But they have to do it because that's what the people that are deciding on their relationships. They're doing. They're they're creating an online relationship. They're building trust with that particular online brand or person. And then when they go to the store, it's oh wow, it's so good to meet you in person. That is, I hear that all the time. I mean, even stop for a moment and think about what it is about shopping with a small local business that consumers love. They love the customer intimacy. They love the trustworthiness. They love how convenient those stores make it. They love how personal and how much those stores and those businesses and those employees care about them. And those are the things small retailers and local businesses excel at inside their store. And today, consumers are looking for that same attention, that same personal service. But before they reach the store, they want to feel that while they're interacting with the retailers in a digital medium. And so it's really the same values and the same kind of behaviors that retailers are great at, figuring out how they translate those into the digital world so they can keep that connection. And that's a hard thing to ask somebody to do, really, because it's a different way of thinking. It's a different way of communicating. Do you feel that stores are kind of fumbling along and not going to experts and saying, you know, teach me to be a good uh, Twitter uh, tweeter uh, or teach me how to use Facebook properly on a, on a social level, not on a, oh, this is how you do marketing. This is how you do Facebook campaigns. It's no like, how do I learn to speak authentically through email or, or through uh, the other social platforms? Absolutely. I mean, like so many things in life, sometimes our greatest strengths are also our largest weaknesses. <laughs> so you think about an entrepreneur, they know how to roll up their sleeves they know how to figure it out. They know how to create something out of nothing and to do it on their own. Those are tremendous strengths that I admire greatly. But when it comes to learning how a rapidly changing digital world influences their marketing, sometimes that kind of spirit gets in the way. And what can help them mo the most tremendously is to instead reach out to find a partner that is strong where they are weak or, you know, really well-versed where they may be somewhat ignorant. And that's, you know, when you can really multiply how effective you're being 
with your marketing and how you're using digital technology when you can connect with someone to help you do that as opposed to trying to recreate the wheel all the time. By the time you figure it out, Bob, it's probably changed. (laughs) Yeah, that's for sure. I find a lot of times, you know, when I'm trying to help an organization, the first thing I ask for, who's the person that's passionate? And they'll say, what do you mean? So who's the person in the company who is constantly bringing it up in meetings about how great our products are? Or I was trying this on the weekend and I discovered a new thing you can do with our product. And they're living the product. That's the person you want to be doing social media. That's the person you want as your your figurehead for social communication and and information. Uh, Do you think companies are still gun shy because they think those people tend to be a little on the weird side? Uh, Yeah, I agree with that totally. Um, You know, and and I have to say, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing to be gun shy, especially when it comes to social media. Personally, what I espouse is that I think there's tremendous value in doing your social media well as a local business. Uh, But there's also risk. Like almost everything out there that has value, there's risk associated with it too. And I try to encourage retailers to think of, especially the social part of digital marketing, that it's really not just a checkbox that is checked or not checked. (laughs) It's much better to have a comprehensive plan with the right people in place that are really passionate about it and dedicated to following through. Um, And if you don't happen to have that yet, it might not be the right time to take that on Um, because that's so important that, you know, once it's out there, it is social in nature. There is a back and forth. So you've got to be ready for that, willing and excited about it in order for it to really work all the way for you. And that's just my two cents on that. (laughs) And a very, very high value two cents. Hey, let's talk a little bit about the book itself because you do say 11 surprising things. Were there actually more than 11 surprising things or did it just turn out that there was 11 surprising things? (laughs) Um, Gosh, I cannot tell you how many times I was surprised as we did the research that really became the foundation of the book. Definitely more than 11 times. Uh, But as we started to present some of these research findings, uh, we traveled all over the country spoke at a variety of conventions and buying group shows and even some very small, almost town hall-like events, Um, we kept finding resonance with some of the surprising things more than the others. And that's really what distilled it down into the 11 topics that we decided to go in depth with in the book was really based on the feedback of the retailers that we were presenting this research to, the things that shocked them the most, the things that they reported being the most powerful to them. The things that some retailers say, I'm finally going to be able to sleep at night because I have some answers. I have some data that can help me decide A or B or how much to spend or here's a big one, what to do first when there's so many things out there to do. Mm. You know, this is coming up again and again, so I guess we should uh, jump on it a little bit too. Uh, You know, a tremendous amount of data and research and this uh, book, which is full color inside, which is amazing, um, has tremendous amount of these charts. I mean, basically every point that you're making. So, and by the way, here's the support data. So let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, how did you collect this data? And and was there something that you uh, discovered about collecting the data that would be beneficial for other people? Well, I have to say I am a self-professed data geek, so I really enjoyed this process. (laughs) Uh, First, what was amazing to me is that it is so possible today to go out and get data when you don't have it. 
So one thing I would encourage everyone to do is if you're facing a problem for your business, go and really look to see if somebody has data that can help you make an informed decision as opposed to just using your gut. And if you find that the data isn't available, maybe that person should be you. (laughs) So, and that's exactly where we were. You know, we had a group of folks together here at our company and we were discussing some of our frustrations when we speak with small business owners and we actually made a list on the whiteboard. Here are things that we hear them say that cause us great fear. Uh, We worry for them when they say these things. We don't necessarily believe them to be true, but we're not doing a very good job of of helping them uh, come to see it our way. And then we kind of stopped and said, well, how do we know our way is even the right way? (laughs) So we ended up just kind of whiteboarding all these things that we hear small entrepreneurs say. And then we said, well, why don't we actually figure out if it's true or not? And uh, we set out to do this research Uh, which we got the method. Actually, we can thank NPR for that. So I was uh, driving one Saturday morning, and uh, my husband and I were listening to NPR, and there was a a show on NPR where they were discussing how uh, doctoral research has changed so dramatically with the advent of new technology, and that most doctoral research was getting done via a program called Amazon Mechanical Turks that Amazon runs. And I'd never heard of such a thing And it was really amazing. They were saying you could use this to conduct research uh, in a less expensive way and most importantly, a much faster way than ever was possible before. And so I started talking to my brother, James, about that. And uh, we did some research and we said, huh, maybe we could use that to get this data that, you know, we think we believe in so strongly, but let's really find out. And so that began kind of the long process of trying to create this data where none existed, trying to gather it and trying to understand it. And it just, you know, became uh, something so much larger than we originally set out to do. It was such an interesting process. Well, you know, it, it, it big data and the ability to mine data effectively, all it kind of... St- it, it, you talk with people and they, and they talk, oh, well, these algorithms and blah, blah, blah. At the end of the day, if you do not have an intelligent question or an intelligent um, uh, finish that you're looking for, then the data is useless to you because then you don't know what the, cor- the correct answer is going to be. Did you find that uh, was true for you as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the most amazing things about this new technology is that you can iterate so quickly. Uh, You know, our first Mechanical Turk survey, we probably only surveyed 10 people with one question. And you're able to learn from that and then think, oh, these answers seem weird. Is it because the sample size isn't long enough? Is it the way that we worded the question? And you could continue to iterate until you get it just right. And that's when you can say, boom, I want to go out and get 2,000 people to weigh in on this. And I feel really confident that the question is worded correctly. Um, and then even more questions come up like, well, what if people answering this survey that are doing it online behave differently than someone who would never answer an online survey? And so then we got into doing telephone surveys for a portion so that we could analyze whether or not there was any statistical variation in the answers that we got from folks that completed the survey online versus those that did it telephonically. It's, it is kind of a never-ending rabbit hole when you get into this. You can refine and refine and refine, but this great technology does let you iterate quickly, so you can get very high-quality data in a very short period of time. Well, and it goes back to the day when um, 
you know, and we're talking 20, 30 years ago, uh, when you would have to get data done by a, a statistics organization and they would say, well, we're going to ask 100 people that are in your demographic. And they say, yeah, but isn't that inaccurate? So no, if you do 100 or you do 10,000, you basically get the same bell curve. Is that true with the data today? Um, because you, you can sample so much more data and so many people that the bell curves actually do vary or you've discover that you actually don't have to do a million people. You can do it with 100,000 or 10,000 or even 100. That is such an interesting question because we went through that entire thought process here while we were doing the research. You know, Bob, we originally set out that we were going to survey 100 people. And uh, what actually happened is that as we got the results back and we sat around in our uh, manager's meeting, our managers did not believe the results. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They said that absolutely cannot be true. And that is actually why we ended up surveying so many people. I mean, we surveyed just shy of 2,000 consumers um, all across North America. And um, we weren't planning on doing that, but we didn't believe the results. But I can tell you now that we've gone through that experience that actually <laughs> the results remained exactly the same as we increased our sample size more than 10 times. Mm. It just, you're, you would get, you know, 0 0.04 instead of 0 0.0. So, you know, looking at some of these charts, like I'm on page 13 here, and it's like, how will your prospects find your phone number? That's a huge question for a retailer. How will they find it? And this chart's insane. It's like 96.8 people, internet search, and then other 3.3%. I mean, it's not even close. It's like, if you don't have your phone number all over the internet, you're not in business. You know, and it seems even like a silly question, some might say, like, doesn't everybody know that? Uh, but you would be amazed, first of all, how many retailers are still spending significantly to advertise in publications like the Yellow Book. Um, and also, you know, I think we're all tempted to believe that people know us, right? <laughs> the folks that, even the folks that we've done business with before, they obviously know us, right? And they know right where to go and how to reach us. But then when you take a step back, when you really rethink this thought, what you're going to see is that even if you've known someone and they've done business with you for 10 years, they don't have your phone number memorized. <laughs> yes. Exactly. They just don't. And today, the absolute authoritative source for that information is an internet search. So even very, very basic things like that are easy to overlook. Our hope is that this research can really help put that in perspective for local business owners. Well, you know, you used a very good, interesting tool, knowing us. And, you know, I was just sitting down with a, a client I'm helped to rebrand. And the first thing I usually say is, hey, you know what? You should reach out to your, your top customers and ask them what they like about you the most. And they were like, what do you mean? I said, well, I bet you the answers will shock you. And it's true because our self-perception of what our business is is based on skill sets and what they think they're good at. But the client might use them for totally different reasons. Oh, we use you because I like you. Or we use you because of this award that you got 15 years ago or whatever it is. And it usually floors people. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, you're looking at a book like this, you start to realize the importance of asking questions that aren't driven by assumptions and actually do some research and you will find some amazing facts which will give you a competitive advantage. There is actually ROI 
in spending the time figuring this out. So for you, when you've done all this stuff, do you feel now way more confident and much more aggressive in the market because you know what you're saying is not BS, it's actually facts that you can uh, uh, you know, pull up on a, on a spreadsheet and say, hey, look it, here are the numbers. How many do you want to look at before you're going to start believing me? I can't tell you how helpful that this has been. Really, the relief has been in that it's just a, a new and different way to communicate to these retailers that we feel so passionate about helping. Um, you know, we spent years telling them this is our opinion, um, but it's a dramatically different conversation to be able to give them the confidence that comes with real data. Uh, I mean, you can see the relief sometimes, you know, when we speak or someone comes to us to tell us that they read our book. I think the overwhelming adjective that I would use to describe how people feel after doing that is relieved. There are answers that can guide you. Uh, you talked about ROI, which is obviously very important to any business. But I would argue that almost as important as ROI is your own feeling about what you're doing, your own confidence. Um, if you can set down your worry and move forward boldly and confidently with your choices in your business, then that is all of that energy that you can reclaim and use to grow your business, to better serve your customers, to make it a more wonderful place for your employees to work. Every ounce of worry, every moment of hesitation about those decisions is a drain on an entrepreneur's energy and their talent and their time. And so above all else, data can give you confidence to decide yes or no, how much, and when to do the things that you need. I don't think that you can put a price on how much that confidence and peace of mind is worth and how much you can do with what you reclaim of that when you have data to back up your choices. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the secret to being a great salesperson is believing in what you're selling. And, you know, if you can go into a meeting knowing that, yeah, man, I am going to blow these guys away because I got the data backing me up, they'll nine times out of 10 won't even ask about the data. They'll be saying, wow, this is fascinating. Great. When can we do it? I have a really funny story about uh, having confidence in your own choices. Uh, so there are probably some people here who will be embarrassed when I share this story. But <laughs> so one of the questions that we asked in our research was um, how important is it to you as a consumer to be able to see the price of the products you're researching during your shopping research? And, you know, we had forever been espousing that the retailers on our platform should use our tools to price the products on their website. And we got a lot of pushback, and there's good reasons that, that retailers might be scared to show pricing. Um, we got the research back, and I expected a lot of consumers to say they wanted to see prices, but I was overwhelmed by how many. I mean, it was such a larger percentage than I had originally anticipated who really demand to see prices. And if they're not seeing the prices, just believe wholeheartedly and immediately that the prices are too high and that's why they're being withheld. And what was so shocking is as our management team was reviewing this research, I saw everybody's head kind of look down, their chin drop, everyone's avoiding eye contact. And someone was brave enough at one point to say, you know, on our website, <laughs> we do not show the prices of our products <laughs> that we sell to business owners. 
And maybe we should rethink that based on this research, if we're really going to walk the walk and talk the talk. Um, and it was, I mean, just an amazing epiphany to us that even though we are experts in this arena, we had fallen victim to the same thoughts and the same fears that are keeping so many of our customers from achieving their true potential. Um, and through this research and through the power of this data, we were really able to disconnect from that emotionally and make a more uh, you know, well-informed, rational decision. We changed our website. We do, in fact, show all the prices for every product and service that we sell on it. And that has been tremendously helpful for us. Uh, but I love that we went through that experience because it really allows us to empathize with the retailers we speak with. We know exactly how they feel and exactly why they have that fear. We've been through it. We have used that data to change our behavior, and we have felt the tremendous benefits of doing so. And it really helps us connect and uh, you know, really empathize with the process that they're going through. Hmm. Yeah, well... I, I'm a big believer in pricing on the internet so people feel that they have a choice. I mean, if you don't have a $10,000 budget and you spend a bunch of time researching something, you say, oh my God, you're salivating. This is, this is exactly it. And it's like 10 times more than you can afford when you finally get the price. Then you're just pissed off. And so that's a bad brand experience. And people have to understand that it's not shotgun marketing doesn't really work anymore because everybody is well researched they know exactly what they want they just need the details and a big detail is what is this going to cost me um, I think some of the most successful pricing structures is when you're given three choices and it, it's apparently a, a, like a magical number and you say look at here's the cheapest thing we can do it's the rock bottom you get these three things and then right beside it oh here's something that's best value and there's 23 things oh and by the way if you want to spend a ton of money here's a huge list of things and people can you know it's like going into a store and they want to buy the fancy Gucci shoes and you don't buy the Gucci shoes but you end up walking out with a Gucci way overpriced keychain but you got a Gucci brand thing because that's what you wanted. You just wanted to have something Gucci. You can't afford a $1,000 purse, but you can afford a $30 keychain. Yeah, and I don't know any retailers that would hide prices inside their store or would ever have their salespeople spend a lot of time try telling, trying to sell someone something that was obviously outside of their price range. Yet it's so easy to forget that, that same, the consumer is having that same type of experience with you and your brand in the digital world and you want to treat them just as amazingly as you treat them inside your store in the digital world. And that includes, you know, doing the work and, uh, you know, being polite enough to show them the pricing options that are available with you. Um, do you think that people still have a disconnect? And it's kind of repeating what you just answered, but do they still have a disconnect about resource allotment? Like we should, like we're spending uh 20% of our budget for the staff that are in our stores, and yet we're spending a very, very small percentage uh, of that overall budget on staff for our internet and, and our social media? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. And I think it probably, my gut is that that would vary tremendously by industry and what technology is available to them. Um, even within the industries that we serve, for example, um, things that are different in the industries make you have to spend a different amount to support them. So in the appliance industry, for example, tremendously price regulated. There are lots of guide prices out there. There are rules about how you can price and how low you can price in certain periods of time. There may be a promotional minimum advertised price that's good for these four days only. 
Um, and that's a very different world than, say, a furniture retailer where there's really no concept of promotional maps. Um, oftentimes, vendors don't publish any type of guide pricing. It's really up to the individual retailer to decide what they're going to price each product at. So I'm sure that there are huge variations in every industry about how much resource it really takes to do the things that consumers demand. What I think is powerful about the research is that a uh, retailer can use that to justify and help them decide how important is it that I spend the necessary resources. Maybe for one store, it's only one hour a week of someone's time and another store, it's a full-time position. The only way you can make the decision about what resources are worth spending on something is if you have data about how important that something is to the end consumer and what kind of ROI that's going to help you make. Well, you know, that's a good segue here because uh, I love this section about uh, who cares about more than just the lowest price. And these days, if you're um, I think Gary Vaynerchuk made it. It's like who's fighting to hit the bottom and who's fighting to hit the top. And if you're a discount-driven uh, organization, you're basically spending all your resources to basically at the end of the day lose uh, compared to putting the best product out there with the best customer service and the best warranties and trying to hit a much higher Dem, uh, smaller demographic, but uh, a higher spend value, uh, and and going to the top. There are places for both those organizations, but do you think as uh, the internet evolves and the the way people consume slightly differently, that will change? I do think that technology is changing how easy or difficult it is to be each type of organization. So obviously not our work, but there are organizations that are amazing at um, all of the mechanics of doing business. They're, they have operational excellence, right? And they can offer really low prices. And then there are businesses on the other end of the spectrum that they excel at customer intimacy. They can charge a higher price and people are, are happy to pay that. Um, and then there are, of course, I think the other categories, innovators, people that are creating something for the first time. I think that as technology evolves, it becomes more stark about which position you need to be in as a retailer. Um, I think the retailers in our field really only have one option, in my opinion, and that is to excel at customer intimacy. They're not creating the products that they sell, so innovation isn't really an option. <laughs> um, and then really, I mean, it's just chasing diminishing returns to try to pursue operational excellence as your key to success. Uh, that's just chasing that lowest price. And, and there is value and there's profit to be had in that. But in, in my opinion and experience, that is to be had by the largest organizations out there, which most of these small retailers are not. Um, and also, frankly, I don't think it's as much fun as the other part. <laughs> I think they own their own business for a reason. And that is because they want to make a mark on their community. They have a passion for helping people get the best product for their home and that that is right up customer intimacy's alley. And that's where they should really focus. And it's one of the hardest things that I have found for retailers to accept is that not everybody out there that's buying the type of product they sell is necessarily their customer. There are some of these people that you just don't want to do business with if you can't earn a profit. And that's okay. Yeah, it's very hard to say no or turn a customer down. It's, it's the yes syndrome. Yeah. We fall victim to it as well. <laughs> How should businesses perceive themselves? Should they look at themselves as an answer device or um, a, a supplier of products? And let me rephrase that in a way that 
like when I go to my hardware store, I'll, I've got two hardware stores. I got a big box hardware store I go to if I want a specific thing that uh, is hard to find. But I'll go to my local guy, which only has probably about twelve hundred square foot space, uh, to ask him a question about, "Hey, I'm thinking of doing this. This is my approach. What do you think?" So I'm getting expert advice. Do you think that is what gives uh, small retailers an advantage over big retailers? Because big retailers, they're just like getting people in, burning them out, and then replacing them. So that your knowledge base is all over the place. Every day, every hour, and every minute, a local small business's key to success is how well they can serve the customers in their area. It's about how well they can advise them. It's about how they truly care. You know, these are people you're going to bump into, perhaps. You want to make sure you got them the right product and they're enjoying it. So it's so much more than just order fulfilling when it comes to a small business. They're the fabric of our communities. They are the people who have dedicated their lives to something. So when, as a homeowner, you need help getting the right product in your home, don't you want to go to someone who's so passionate about it that they built their life around it? I mean, that's really where these local businesses excel, the relationships they build through the expert advice that they can give and really connect people with the amazing products that are out there, um, the right one for them. Let's jump back into the book. You know, it, it's a, a small book, but it's so packed with amazing information. Um, I decided to have it on the show anyways. But really, you could sit down and read this book in about an hour. And But what happened to me was that, you know, I zipped through it, and then I went back to a favorite chapter and really started rereading it. And there is so much stuff between the lines here and the ability to read a chapter and then go back and it, reinterpret it and kind of put your own thoughts into it. Was that planned? Well, first of all, thank you so much for reading it and having us on the show. We really appreciate it. Uh, we did plan very specifically who was the audience for this book. Um, the audience is these small entrepreneurs, business owners that own you know, retail stores that sell durable goods. That's a pretty specific niche. <laughs> There's yeah. probably not a lot of books out there written exactly for them. Uh, these retailers, well, definitely some of them are incredibly uh, business savvy and, and may very well voraciously read business books. A lot of the retailers that we work with, they don't have time to digest a lot of business best practice out there. So they're maybe not accustomed to reading a lot of business books. Um, and their time is money. Their time is exceptionally valuable. So what we strove to do was to write something that was approachable and not intimidating to these folks. Um, and also, we wanted to make it so that you could read each chapter independently. If someone heard us speak and then said, wow, I've got to share this with Bob back at my organization who has put his foot down and will never, ever, ever show a price on our website. <laughs> I want him to read chapter four about the high price of hiding prices. Uh, we wanted to make it so that you could get value out of reading a single chapter or returning to it by itself because that's the world many of these retailers live in. They are wearing 25 hats. They are delivering product and making orders and arranging the showroom and doing the books at night. Uh, we wanted them to be able to get a lot of value out of a very short period of time and to be able to pass it around and share it with each other. I wanted to talk about Chapter 6. The most important space in your website has nothing in it. What <laughs> the heck does that mean? That's a terrifying title for at least content <laughs> providers. So what does that mean? 
Oh, uh, well, this is, again, one of the things that surprised us so much in the research. I can't even remember how this question made it into the research. I'm so glad it did, and I have to tell you it's scary. It probably easily could have been cut. But one of the questions that we ask consumers is how important was the accuracy of full text search on a retail website of this nature? So you know that bar on every website, usually in the upper right-hand corner, and you can type in anything you want and click search. How important is it to you that that actually returns accurate results? And the answers were through the roof, and also the comments that people gave in the survey about how frustrating it was to them if they did not get accurate results from that full-text search, or how much it made them distrust the retailer in general if they weren't getting good results. Um, so we learned that people felt very, very strongly about this. And we also knew from our experience that most retailers never gave a second thought to the full text search on their website. As I'm sure you can imagine, you probably never thought about it either. You just expect it to work. But something that's really interesting is that we all expect full text search to work because Google has trained us so well. But that, in fact, does not mean that making full text search work well is easy. It's actually an incredibly difficult piece of technology to get right. And uh, if you pay attention, at least in the industries that we work in and go out there, there's a lot of full-text search that's really quite awful <laughs> that does not give you accurate search results, even among some of the giants of the industry. And so we really uncovered here something interesting. It was, A, something that retailers rarely thought of before our book, uh, B, it's something that apparently is extremely important to consumers. And so that together gives you a new way to think about things and a new way to evaluate your service providers, right? If you read this book and then you knew that was important and the next time you're evaluating a web provider, you actually tested it, then in my mind, we have done something really helpful for that business owner. We have given them the tools they need to evaluate their options and to make sure that they're giving their consumers what they want and something that they probably never gave a second thought to before. Well, you know, if you look at, uh, you kind of do a follow-up chapter here, the deal is in the details, because if you don't have, you know, robust information and, and a lot of detail about your specific product, then it makes it very hard for the search engine algorithms to, to define uh, those results. So a lot of this stuff kind of goes hand in hand. It, it's when you go down this path and say, well, you know, if we're going to do this and be uh, get more uh, useful results and we've got to have our phone number on every page and it goes, as you start going through this list, this can turn into a complete redesign of what your online marketing presence is because so many people have it wrong. And even, even I, after going through the book, realized I'm doing some fundamental things wrong. Are you finding that uh, is the case when you're, you're basically breaking the bad news to clients? Well, of course, Bob. No one using our services is doing anything wrong, right? <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, yeah, I mean, I have to tell you, I was actually quite nervous as this book came out. What if we are pushing retailers too far? What if it's so far outside of their comfort zone that it's overwhelming? What if even though we've got all this great data to back it up, what if it's just too far from what they originally believed in order to believe in it? Um, I've been very pleasantly surprised though that retailers have been very open to learning a new way to think about it. Um, and yeah, it can be overwhelming. I mean, it's never a good day as a business owner 
when you learn that you've been doing something backwards or you haven't been doing something the most optimal way. Um, but you know, knowledge is power. If you know about it, then you can take corrective action. There's so much potential out there for these retailers. They have so many dreams they haven't yet achieved. <laughs> and the first step is knowing what you're not doing right, even though that's not always comfortable. But you know, these are entrepreneurs. I have faith in them that they will take that and they won't run away from it. They'll run with it towards a way to do it better. Well, that begs the question, what should a business owner and I, I'm thinking, like, even though you've you've targeted this to to um, retailers, you know, anybody can be using this knowledge. Even if you're in a C-suite situation in a multinational organization, you read this book, you may be like, oh my god, I got to talk to our statistics guys because I don't even think we're tracking this stuff at this level. So, you know, what should people be doing in any business to move? towards this approach to um, analyzing and, and understanding what they should be doing other than reading the book? Oh, that's a great question. And, and I agree with you. A lot of this can be applied outside of the narrow industries that we happen to work within. Um, the biggest takeaway that I would take from this whole experience is that it is within your power to go out and get the data you need to make good decisions. And I would encourage any business especially as they're making decisions that may involve a large spend associated with them, and whether that's in dollars or time, because those are both very valuable. Before you do that, have the discipline to only discuss what can be done when you have numbers that can help you evaluate the effectiveness of it. If you can have that rule within your organization, um, as we sometimes do here at RWS, that if you don't have the numbers, end the conversation. <laughs> Go get the numbers and then bring it back up. Uh, you can go get them in so many places. There are wonderful organizations that do nothing but all of these studies. And then, of course, now we have the technology that you can do a lot of these yourselves. You can get analytics on what you're already doing. You can survey your own existing customers. You can do your own research like we did. You can hire a firm to do it for you. Uh, but it's worth the time to get that foundation right and have the discipline to not discuss major new spends or initiatives unless you have some data to guide you. It's going to help keep you from making so many mistakes. And, and yes, there's going to be a time where you're going to have to use your gut. Every business has to do that. You'll run out of numbers eventually. But wouldn't you rather make just that last leap with your gut than the foundational one? Yeah, it's a little unnerving, actually. Because, you know, you read a book like this and you kind of realize how much of your business and, and critical decisions are being made from gut feeling or just, you know, guesswork. I mean, entrepreneurs are classic at this. Oh, if we do this and this, we're going to make $10 million. Well, where's the facts behind that? That's crazy to say something like that. But everybody goes, oh, okay, Joe, let's do it. It's definitely refreshing to see a book like this come out because it, it and in a form that's simple to understand there are so many books out there on analytics that are just like, oh my God, I need a PhD in number crunching to kind of get my head around this. And this is just such a clear, simple in, in indicator about the power of not just the data, but the power of the confidence you get knowing that when you stand up in a meeting, you say, no, Joe's wrong. I'm right. And these are the reasons. Sorry, Joe, but this is way too important, and here are some facts about it. And if you guys want more research, I'd be happy to provide it. But really, somebody in the art department doing that 
would blow people away. And that's the way it's got to be used. It can't be, oh, here's our new design. Isn't it great? We have this beautiful woman and she's riding the motorcycle and we're going to sell a lot of products because of that. You can't do that anymore. You got to say, we study the demographics, our, um, these are the people we're trying to communicate to, blah, 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 and here's the facts behind it. And by the way, based on these facts, here's the design we came up with. So you're defending a design based on statistics. Very rare that you have a situation where somebody goes in like that. Yeah. And, and I also want to point out, you know, there is a balance. You'll never have all the answers you need from data. Um, and sometimes you have to do something in order to get data in the first place. So I wouldn't be afraid of that either. You may very well say, we're not exactly sure what to do. We don't know how to get the data to guide it. We are going to do this very small first iteration, but we are committed to collecting X, Y, and Z data about it so we know if we went the right way, the wrong way, before we iterate again and spend more money and more time. So I think sometimes people, they get very intimidated by data. It sounds great, but if they don't know how to begin, they can be very quite fatalistic about it. There's really no way that's wrong to begin. Get your hands on the data that you can. Create new ways to get data that you don't have already. And when all else fails, do the smallest version of what you can do with a commitment to gather data from it and make it better. Wow, solid advice. We've been chatting about the book, Rethink, 11 Surprising Things You Should Do Now to Win Retail Customers in the Digital Age. And this book, really, even though it's for retail customer uh, appreciation and gathering, uh, I think it, it's got a lot of uh, insight and, and information that will make you reconsider the importance of your data department. If you don't have a data department, maybe putting that in the budget for next year. And we only touched on uh, a couple of the 11 surprising things. So you're just going to have to go out there and get the book to learn everything else. I'd like to thank the brother and sister team that made this all available to us. And I appreciate you coming on the show and representing your brother in such a nice way. Thank you so much for having me, Bob. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the show. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Like us at Facebook forward slash Business Book Talk. Follow the host on Twitter at Bob Garlic. Visit the website businessbooktalk.com for show notes and lots of other great interviews. See you next week.